The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Amen, amen. Well, how are we this morning, everyone? Good. I think you look good, but I can't really see you through the smoke right now. So, um, But uh, it's great to be up here. For those of you that are new, my name is Tyler. I typically do the singing and guitar playing around here, but this morning I get the privilege of stepping to the podium and uh, preaching to you. So, yeah. So we are in week six of a seven-week series called Things We Love, if you will look to the screen. This week we are preaching on why we love the church. And we're kind of viewing this series, we say it every week, as kind of a DTR for our church. We're saying, hey, this is who we are, and this is what we love, and this is how what we love has shaped, is shaping, and is going to shape where Story City Church is heading, who Story City Church is, and what we do. And so we love the church. We love the church this morning because God loves the church. God gave himself for the church, and he is committed to the church. And so so are we, and we're going to unfold all that that looks like now. Um, So if you have your Bible, get it out. Ephesians 2 will be in Ephesians 2, verses 17 through 21. I'll start us off by reading our, our text for the morning. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you have a word for us and that your word is true and can be trusted. Um, We are not ashamed of the gospel in this place this morning because it is hope and it is life and it will set us free if we trust it this morning. And so we look to your word as we look at why we are to love the church and what the church is supposed to look like and what makes the church flourish. So be with us. Would your spirit guide my words? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's start here. If we're going to have an honest talk about why we love the church and why we should love the church, I think we need to address what I see as a widely embraced and more so and more so widely embraced misconception about church, especially here in, in big cities, but in Los Angeles in particular. And it's this. I think that if you talk to enough Christians and you go around and you talk about the church in our city, it wouldn't be very long if you went around and asked Christians what they thought about the church until you had someone say something like this. You know, I'm into Jesus. I love Jesus. I love God. But honestly, the church, I've tried it. I've been hurt. It's messed up. I just don't need the church. Honestly, I can get as much from listening to a podcast and some Chris Tomlin in my bedroom than I can to go into church and actually being with people of God. Actually, I kind of prefer it that way. And I want to start us this morning because I think a lot of us in this room probably resonate with that as you hear me say that. Maybe you think that and you just happen to have ventured to church this morning because you heard Story City has great coffee. Um, I want to say this, that will be found nowhere in scripture. There is no category in scripture for that. Scripture would stand directly opposed to that. In fact, scripture would tell us that one of the primary tests and one of the primary ways we can look inward and say, do I love Jesus is how and if we love the people of God as messed up and broken as they can be. And I do want to take a moment and take an honest look at the fact that the church can be messy. The church is broken. Listen to this quote from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. 
He said this, give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. And I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it. For I would have not have been, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, and this is huge, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. So here's what Spurgeon is saying here. He's saying, look, we gotta be honest. The church is not perfect. And many of us in this room, I wanna take an honest look at this and I really wanna stare at it and approach it and analyze it before we jump in this morning. There are people in this room right now who have been genuinely hurt by the church, who have suffered from harsh leadership, overbearing leadership, manipulative leadership, who have suffered from people within the body doing genuine damage to them that has hurt them. That's real. And we need to look at it and we need to stare at it and be honest about it because Eugene Peterson says it this way. The church will always be a mess because the church is full of sin and sinners, but there's nowhere else to be a Christian. There's no other place to be a Christian. So Spurgeon also says this, look, the church isn't perfect. Good, because I'm going to fit in <laughs> because I'm not perfect either, right? Nobody in this room is perfect. So let me break a few hearts real quick in the morning. You, who wants a broken heart in this room right now? Story City is not the exception to this rule. We are not going to be the perfect church that never fails you. Some of you in this room, honestly, even though we don't do this at this church, you could give an amen to that already because you've been here a couple years and we've already hurt you. I'm not, we, what we do hope and what we strive for as a church is repentance, turning towards Jesus when we are weak, even as leaders, and saying, we're here for Jesus. This is about him. This is about his glory. This is about establishing his kingdom. And we're gonna fail each other. And we gotta honestly look at it and say, it's not a bailout card. It's not a get out of jail free card. We still commit There is no biblical category this morning for a believer in Jesus that is not rooted in and committed to the local church. So we can approach the runway where we have to land the plane of this sermon this morning and we can take an honest look at all the ways that the church is broken, but that doesn't change the fact that the only place the Bible provides us to land the plane as a church this morning is in full, wholehearted commitment to one another in the church. So we can do it sober. We can look and say, we're broken, I'm a mess, you're a mess. It's gonna be a journey, but we're in. But notice what I say here. I said the people of God. We have to commit to the people of God. So if we're going to have a discussion, we have to start here. The church is not a building. It's the people of God. The church is not a building this morning. It's the people of God. So if, if the Colony Theater, I don't know if you guys know this, but we rent this place. If tomorrow it went up in flames, I want to be honest with you, I would not shed a tear I, uh, I might get an awesome Instagram post out of it, actually. Um, it's just a building to me. It's walls and stone. Here's what we love. We don't love the Colony Theater. If, if, if your life was wrecked by the Colony Theater being destroyed, I would say, well, talk to me about that. Um, but we are not connected to the Colony Theater here. The church is not a building. We are connected to one another. And what we love in this place is one another. We are the church. I don't normally do this, but I want to say, just take a minute, turn to the person sitting next to you and say, we are the church. 
We are the church. We are the church. See, we could take, we could leave the Colony Theater, we could head out into a field right now if we could find one in this crazy city, we could find a, a big open field and stand there as a group and God's power, his presence, his spirit are just as available to us in that place as they are here this morning in this theater. I want to nail this idea home. So look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 with me. Our text starts here. It says, And he came, he being Jesus, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What we see here is that Jesus forms the church out of nothing. And he forms it by calling people to himself from near and from far. Through the gospel, he preaches peace to them. In the context of this letter being written to the church at Ephesus through the Apostle Paul, he was addressing Jews who were near to God, who had the Messianic promises, the Davidic and Abrahamic covenants were given to them, and they were working out their salvation, or so they thought, but they were engaged in religious activity that we ended up seeing is dis disconnected from any genuine love and heart for God. And in that scripture would expose what they were doing, not as love for God, but as actual hostility to God as they tried to earn their way to God through their good works. And the people who were far in this text are the Gentiles, what scripture would call Gentiles, who had no knowledge of God, of the messianic promises of Jesus who was coming. They were out doing their own thing. But in our context this morning, this looks a little different. Let me try to explain what this might look like, the near and far here at Story City Church. Some of us in this room are good old-fashioned church people, church folk. We were raised in the church, right? You, you were born in a Sunday school classroom singing Chris Tomlin songs. You were the donkey's legs in the Christmas play growing up every year. You are a church person. But somewhere along the line, whether you were a teenager or somewhere in your earlier years, maybe this was you, you recognized that all this frenetic religious activity that you were engaged in day after day had no power and no ability and was not connecting your heart and producing within you a genuine love and passion and transformation by the grace of God into genuine commitment to Jesus Christ. You were just doing church. And then somewhere along the line, by the grace of God, it all changed, and in a moment, Jesus and his beauty and the fact that he came and lived the life you should have lived, died the death that you deserved, and rose again, defeating sin, death, and Satan. In a moment, that became real to you, and you gave your heart to him, and he became beautiful and satisfying, and there was joy, and all of a sudden, there was this thing welling up in you where you wanted to spend time with him. You wanted to read his word. Prayer and the people of God were a pleasure all of a sudden instead of a burden as imperfect as they were. God saved you from near. He saved you from your goodness by exposing the futility of your own churchiness to save you and showing you your need for a savior who you had in spades in Jesus Christ. He saved you from near. Some of you in this room, though, that's not your story. That's not the life experience you've had. You didn't have parents that brought you to church. It was probably a good thing because maybe dad and mom were passed out drunk on the couch. and It would have been pretty embarrassing if they came to church. Maybe some of you in this room, have always kind of, actually kind of mocked church people, Jesus people. They're so silly. They sing their songs. They, maybe you've been genuinely hurt by Jesus people, by, by judgment from them, and you were out, maybe you were out doing your own thing in the world, mindless of God, addicted to drugs, living with your girlfriend or boyfriend, hopeless, depressed, 
just doing life in this city, mindless, maybe happy as can be in the midst of a career pursuit. But God was nowhere on your radar and he never had been. And then in a second, in a way you couldn't understand, somehow you heard the word of God preached in truth. You heard the transformative message that you failed, but God stepped in and saved you from your failures because he loves you. And your heart was melted by the beautiful truth of what Jesus had done for you. And all of a sudden, you being far from God in a moment were like, I actually love Jesus. What happened to me? What is wrong with me right now? Like, I don't even want this. I don't want it. All of a sudden you're at church singing songs with your hand raised going, what is happening? Stop. Stop. Maybe that was you. Maybe you were far from God, but Jesus, by seeing the beauty of the reality of Jesus, who said, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. He stepped in and in a moment he changed it all for you and he brought you close from far. See, every believer in this room is somewhere on that spectrum. Maybe you resonate with neither of those stories perfectly, but you're somewhere on this continuum. And you've had a journey, and the church is built when Jesus takes people all along that continuum, far from God, near to God, and he brings them together, and he makes them one. According to verse 19 in our text, it says, what does it say when Jesus brings people from near and far? It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He makes us members of his house. That means when we're at church, we're home. I'm not visiting. You're not gonna wear out your welcome here. This is home for us. He takes this eclectic group of prodigal sons who wanted nothing to do with him and self-righteous, whitewashed people who were trying to keep God in their debt by being good, and he shows them the futility of their goodness or their badness to keep them from being saved. He levels us at the cross. He wraps his arm around us, and he says, you're mine. I love you. Nothing can take my love. He melts our hearts, and in that, he makes us one. He makes us a body, and we commit to one another. So death to the idea this morning that church is where good people go to celebrate their goodness. The church is where broken sinners go to cling to the grace of Jesus Christ. The church is not full of good people. The church is full of forgiven people who are being sanctified by a good God. That is what the church is full of. So I wanna tease out a couple implications of this reality this morning. The reality that we are saved by the radical grace of Jesus and he makes us members of his household together. First, the fact that the church is full of forgiven sinners means that at any given moment, the church should look a little messy. And I use that word should on purpose because I really believe that. I believe the church should look messy sometimes if it's doing its job. So let me explain what I think that means and why. I believe that it'll look a little messy because there's always going to be babies in their faith in the church if the gospel is being preached and people are being saved. As a dad of three girls, of, of two girls under three, I can preach with great authority on this. Babies are messy. Babies are messy. They contribute little to the household. They demand much. They ask much. They take much. They give little. That's the reality of babies. But as a dad who has 30-odd years of life on my three-year-old little daughter, Gracelyn, and my seven-month-old Adeline, my job and my response to their babiness is not to look at them and scorn them or hold them in my debt or distance myself from them for being a baby. What do I do? I wrap my arms around them in love and walk with them as they learn slowly over a long period of time, slowly over a long period of time, why it is not okay to take your pants off at community group. 
and why it is not okay to draw clown faces on the hall doorway, and why it is not okay to pick your nose and eat it in public. Yep. And I don't get mad at Graceland for not appreciating a really good steak, right? Like if I put a big slab of meat in front of Graceland, was like, eat up. She, I want goldfish. You don't understand. Steak is so much better than goldfish, man. Come on. No, I don't. She's three. That would be ridiculous. She needs a bottle, right? I don't get angry and distance myself from Graceland when I step on a Lego that she left out. No, I pry it from my bleeding foot. <laughs> I wash it off, and I get down on my hands and knees, and I help her clean, and I show her the right way. That's what a healthy home looks like. It's what a healthy church should look like. A healthy church is not ashamed that there are babies making messes. It lovingly enters in with those who are brand new in their faith, who don't know any better, and it shows them the way. It walks with them towards maturity in Jesus with grace residing in its heart. Now, here's the thing. If Graceland gets to be 16 or 18, and she's still drinking milk from a bottle and taking her pants off at community group, <laughs> things have A, gotten a little awkward, and B, I handle that situation a little differently as a dad, I hope. I'm a little more direct. I'm a little more intentional. I'm a, for her good because I love her. So there has to be nuance in how the church walks with one another. There are different expectations for different seasons. And Paul addresses this in scripture many times. But if God is working in a church, praise Jesus, it's gonna look a little messy and we embrace the mess at Story City. We say, you are welcome here. We love you. Let's walk towards Jesus. He's good. He will transform you. It's a promise. It's going to hurt a lot because sanctification is a rocky road, but you're on it and you can't get off it. So let's go. Secondly, nothing other than seeing, savoring, and knowing Christ as beautiful can hold the church together. I want to read that again. Nothing other than seeing, savoring, and knowing Christ is beautiful can hold the church together. Verse 20 of our text this morning says this, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And that's a big A apostle in the text, meaning they preached the word. They were people who preached the word. And it's built on the foundation of these men who knew Jesus, touched Jesus, met Jesus, and preached the word that Jesus taught them. And then it says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now here's what Christ being the cornerstone means in this church. It means that everything that Story City and any church ultimately is and does, if divorced from the reality of the grace of Jesus, falls apart and becomes futile in the end. Everything the church is, everything the church does, has to be built upon the radical grace we experience in Christ, our cornerstone, who has brought us near and united us. So what Story City ultimately needs this morning, what every church ultimately needs, is not head knowledge. Head knowledge is not bad. It's good. I'm glad that you have head knowledge if you do. I'm glad you've been around the church and learned a lot. But head knowledge ultimately is just one piece of what transforms us. And what we need at the bottom is a radical heart-level, heart-rending experience with the grace of God. An experience. We need to radically experience the grace of Jesus. See, being able to define grace, it's not enough. 
But when you come to the end of yourself, when you've tried everything you can think of to find satisfaction and hope and peace in life, and it's led you down every rabbit trail to reach every dead end that is possibly in sight, and you wind up broken on the floor, weeping in front of Jesus, saying, nothing has worked, and I've made a mess of my life, and I've screwed it all up. Jesus, forgive me. And you expect the death blow. You expect everything in this life is taught you. Well, this is where the hammer comes down. I failed. I screwed up. And all of a sudden, that's not what you get. You see Jesus moving in towards you, wrapping his arms around you, weeping with you, saying, I love you. You are my son. When you expect the death blow and you get a hug, it transforms you. It's transformative. It changes the way you think. It changes the way you act. It changes the way you live and respond to people around you. Jesus, I'm a drug addict. No, you're my son. Jesus, I'm an adulterer. No, you're my daughter. I love you. Now come back home. That is transformative. That is radical grace. And only an experience with radical grace this morning can create the kind of church that God desires for us to be. And without fail, the radical experience of grace will create a church that is radically gracious. Without fail, the radical experience of grace will create a church that is radically gracious. So if you haven't really come to the end of yourself and experienced grace like this, you're going to have a really hard time being patient and forbearing and loving when you see people failing, when they hurt you, when they're floundering in their sin. Because at the end of the day, you still believe that all the good things in your life are a result of the fact that you've nailed it. And why can't they nail it like me? I did it. Why can't they pull themselves up by their bootstraps? But, but when you recognize that it wasn't the best version of you, you on a day when you got $20 bills hanging out of your pockets and you spent three hours, you got a six-pack ab and you spent three hours in the Word that morning, that's not the you that God decided to save. That's not the you that said, okay, you worked your way up. That's good enough. I'll save you now. That's not, okay, I love you now. When you recognize that it was you on your worst day, you in your darkest moment, you in that puddle on the floor, you as a heap that God looked down on and said, mine, I want that so much that I'm gonna give myself for it. I'm gonna die for it. When you see that, that changes you. And how can you experience that kind of grace and not become a gracious person? How can we experience that kind of grace and not forgive, not forbear, not move towards one another in love, even when we're hurt, even when we're failed? Only a radical experience with grace can produce a church that is radically gracious in truth. In this radical grace, secondly, this radical experience of grace this morning in Christ the cornerstone will create a church that can suffer well. It creates a church that can suffer with hope. I know right now in this room, there are people that are suffering on different levels, but there are people that are suffering. There are people in this room right now that are in great financial hardship. They don't know, literally, you don't know if you're going to be able to put food on the table or pay rent next month without having to leave the city. That is suffering. That's hard. I know there are people in this room right now who have lost their jobs and can't see 20 feet in front of their face to know what God's going to do with that. That's suffering. I know right now there are people in this room who have been diagnosed with cancer recently and life was turned upside down. And all of a sudden, the rug is ripped out from under them and their whole reality has been redefined. That's suffering. I know there are people in this room right now who are in the midst of broken relationships that hurt so bad that they can't handle it and they're barely making it through day to day. Every day feels like work and labor just to get through because of the pain of the broken relationships they're walking through. 
I know people in this room that are lonely and alone and afflicted. And yet every week I get to come up here and I stand right about here and I play my guitar and I sing for you guys and I get to watch out and watch these same people worshiping, some of them with their hands raised, some kind of doing this, some out here, some this move. All kinds of different worship going on in this room, but they are singing these words to God. Now let's think about this because from an outside perspective, that makes no sense. You're gonna come to church and worship and sing the worship. You're gonna give praise to the God who you suppose is almighty, all-powerful, could in a moment with a flick of his finger fix all of your problems and make them go away, and yet he's not. He's leaving you there. And yet you're gonna come worship him. You know the only way that that makes sense? The only way that makes sense is if you've had a radical experience with the grace of God where you grow in the confidence that even though life hurts, he's for you, that he's working those things out for good in your life. That those light and momentary troubles that you're walking through are producing within you a hope that will put them to shame when you stand before him in eternity with a new body, a new soul, a new heart, perfect relationships. Radical grace. When you recognize the way God loves you, when you experience that, it helps you to suffer well. And I see it happening in our church. Praise God. Thirdly, only a radical experience of grace through Christ, the cornerstone, creates a church that runs towards needs. We live in a city and in a culture and in a world that runs away from needs. Oh, you're going to ask too much of me. You're going to demand too much of me. I'm going to lock my door and go inside and put on Netflix because I don't want to deal with it. Honestly, like I got enough going on in my life. The gospel undoes that. The radical grace of Christ, the cornerstone, creates a people that saw that he ran towards them when they were broken, when they had nothing to offer, when they were helpless, hopeless, and needy, and he ran towards them. He left his throne. He entered into the mess, and he got his hands dirty, and he got involved, and he saved them. And when you see that, that radical grace will help you to run towards the needs around you. You won't always do it perfectly but this will happen in the church. I read an article this week from USA Today entitled, Faith Groups Provide the Bulk of Disaster Recovery in Coordination with FEMA. So let me read an excerpt from this article on this. Faith-based groups, Christian nonprofits specifically, have been busy bees of late, providing more aid to hurricane victims than even FEMA. The federal agency that's supposed to swoop to the scenes of natural disasters assess the situation and speed the recovery and rebuilding process. Faith-based relief groups are responsible for providing nearly 80% of the aid delivered thus far to communities with homes devastated by the recent hurricanes. What's happening there? How can it be that this church has outpaced an organization created by the federal government to literally assess and meet these specific needs? And yet we've provided 80%. That is the gospel being fleshed out on a national scale. That is the church who had their needs met in Christ, the cornerstone, running to meet the needs of the people around them. And it's awesome. And that will be happening in our church if we are experiencing this kind of radical grace of Christ who brought us from near and far. Lastly, Christ, in Christ, the church is joined together and grows together. Verses 20 and 21 of our text say this, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So I just want to draw two things out of this and then we're done. 
First off, we see that when we have a radical encounter with the grace of God and he makes us his people, he joins us together. I don't know if you write in your Bible, but that's a good two words to underline. Joined together. We are joined together as the church through Christ. But I want to address something here because I think that in our context and in our city and the way we live our lives, we face a unique struggle when it comes to being meaningfully joined together that a lot of people in other cities don't face. So I want to say it first this way, and then I'll try to do my best to explain myself. No promises. If we're going to experience the blessings, the true meaningful blessings God has for us as his church body, we have to move unity with the people of God away from the margins of our lives and towards the center of our lives. If we're going to experience the blessings God has for us as his church, we have to make an intentional effort to move unity and presence and faithfulness to and with the people of God away from the margins that are left in our lives and towards the center of our lives. So let me attempt to say why I think this is a unique challenge in our context. Let's just say this first off. Life in LA is hard. You have to stay busy. You have to work your tail off to put food on the table and to make it. On top of that, some of us move to the city chasing great dreams and great ambitions. A lot of us. This is the city you move. You don't move to this city because you're not motivated, right? You don't move to this city because you have nothing to prove or because you're unwilling to take a risk. You move to this city to make something of yourself, to experience the dream of the Southern California tanned, not me, life, right? Here's the problem with this. Chasing dreams and even just surviving in this city is exhausting. And for those of us in this room that have caught our dreams or are even close, you have found, I trust, that that dream is incredibly high maintenance to maintain. It demands a lot of you. You end up driving Uber and working two day jobs just to make it work here. And what ends up happening with this is that God and his people and our families and the good things that matter so easily get neglected as we live in the rat race, as we chase our dreams. The good things that breathe true life end up getting put in the back seat and something else ends up riding shotgun. As a result, it's been my experience as a pastor in L.A. for three years now that the church and meaningful Christian community subtly shift away from the center of our lives and priorities, and they're left to fill the minimal margins that still remain. And I want to say it this way. The real loser in this equation is not the empty and struggling churches that are scattered across L.A. It's the hearts and souls of the believers who are disconnected from one another, disconnected from meaningful communion with God and his people, disconnected from all that God could do in their lives and hearts if they would commit and live in community and oneness and lean upon each other and fall upon each other and be honest with one another and be vulnerable with one another and live with nothing to hide with one another. See, this is what we long for and it's what we struggle so much to have. I can feel someone thinking a little bit as I'm sharing this. This guy has no empathy for what I'm going through. This guy has no idea how hard it is for me to stay afloat. The pastor is telling me to go to church. Big surprise. Okay, check. 
I want to say I do get it, and I do have empathy for the struggle that life in Los Angeles can be, but I also want to love us enough to say that I still believe what the Word of God says is more true and more definitive in our lives and our souls than what L.A. says makes for life. It is what matters. It has more weight. It has more glory. The Scripture matters more, and I see a God in Scripture that tells me that when I seek Him and His kingdom and His righteousness, then all those things get added to me. I see a God in scripture who tells me that when I delight myself in him, he can give me the desires of my heart. So perhaps we have the equation flipped backwards a little bit this morning. And maybe the thing standing between us and peace and satisfaction and that deep sense of self-worth and that joy and that rest is not an isolation from success or fame or financial security. It's an isolation from God and his people along with him. Maybe the thing that we really deeply were made for, wired for, is to be known and loved. And maybe the only place that can really happen is in a church that is radically experiencing the grace of Jesus, knitting them together in spite of their messes. Lastly, I want to say something that I find very comforting. At the end of this text, it says this. We are told that the church is joined together in Christ, and as it is, it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So here's what I find comforting in this. The text doesn't say that the church is instantly fused together when, you, when Jesus finds you. It doesn't say that out of nowhere, immediately we're made one and perfect and all our problems are gone. It says this is something that we grow into together. This means that meaningful community, this means that learning to forgive and keep walking together, this means that learning together to reach the city for Jesus, this means that doing just Sunday together and doing it well, this means that community that's not awkward takes time. It's something we have to commit to foster together. And it's like everything in life. We are a culture that longs for the immediate. We are a culture that longs for the here and now. what we see in scripture is a God that tells us that faithfulness, commitment to invisible things done well over a long period of time that seem meaninglessness, they develop these things that are incredibly rewarding. See, a community like we've been talking about doesn't take shape because a congregation pulls itself up by its bootstraps and reaches some utopian nirvana where it's all smiles and hallelujahs, how are you brother? All the time. If that is what you're looking for, you are going to, I'm telling you, you're going to end up disillusioned and alone and worn out from the church. This kind of community is created when a group of people has a radical encounter with the grace in Jesus and with sober hearts and minds, they look forward at the potential mess that's in front of them. And they say, I'm still in, I'm all in, I'm pushing all my chips in, I'm committed to this church because God is committed to me and God is committed to this church and it's my only option. I'm moving forward. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to pursue vulnerability. I'm going to be honest about my struggles. I'm going to find people to walk with me in love. I'm going to forgive. So I want to close and lay a simple challenge before us this morning. What is one thing that God would put on your heart in this moment to say, this is the thing, this is a real practical step I can take towards moving towards people towards moving towards the body of Christ? What's the one thing God's asking for me as a practical next step? Maybe it's inviting someone over for dinner this week and just listening 
Somebody you know is lonely. Maybe it's getting a group of friends together and praying, saying, let's take the struggles we have to the Lord together. Let's find comfort in him together. Maybe it's finding somebody you've wronged and forgiving them and, and asking, asking forgiveness from them. Saying, look, I, 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 I'm so, I miss this so easily. I so easily miss and forget the grace that Jesus gave me. Forgive me. I want to be gracious towards you. I want to lay this down. It's going to feel scary. It's going to make us feel vulnerable. I've seen this so often. Anytime. Whenever guys try to get honest and real, somebody says something that pries a little too deep beneath the screen, you can, you can guarantee every time somebody's going to make a joke, right? Because we're uncomfortable with this kind of stuff. We're uncomfortable with being known and intimate. So, some, so a guy will say something like, man, I'm just, man, my marriage is a wreck right now. Man, my mom's sick. Uh, oh, that's, that's, that's what your mom said. Wait, what? That doesn't even make sense. We can't handle it. We push away from this, but we gotta be a church. We gotta become a church that moves in in those moments, that presses in in those moments if we're gonna experience what God has for us. So I wanna encourage us this morning as we close, look for that next step. Who are the people in your path that you need to move towards? It's not everybody. This is how a body works. It happens in different places, different relationships taking root in different ways. God moving and moving the body towards himself through his grace. So find the people. Find those people in your circle that you need to move towards, that God's calling you towards. And I promise you this, it might be a little uncomfortable at first, but it will be what your heart is truly longing for. You will find the reward within it at the end. Empowered by grace, let's model this this week. Let's grow together, let's move towards one another, and let's stay committed to each other because we know that Christ loves his church. Christ died for his bride. We are his body, and this church is something he loves. And so this church is a room full of people that we should love, that we're called to love. Let's pray. Father, I feel the weight of this text this morning. I feel the weight of these concepts and my own inability to even communicate them. So I just pray that you, by your spirit, would be in this room ministering to souls right now. God, we long for something real and authentic in this city that is the city of charades and shows and veneers, of Instagrams that define us rather than intimate relationships where we're known and vulnerable. God, I long to see that kind of thing happening in this church. I long for it, and I acknowledge my struggle towards being truly vulnerable and known. God, when we see your radical grace, the fact that we were at our worst and you still loved us, you still moved towards us, you still took us in. God, it changes all of that. So help us this morning to receive what you're doing in this place. Create relationships that are meaningful and weighty and rooted in the gospel in this place this morning. We love the church. We commit to the church with you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.